Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 181, The Final Rupture. Now, no new patrons, because it's just a few days since I recorded the last episode, but if you can support the show, please consider doing it. It really helps a lot, especially when I buy books. I actually just picked up a history of medieval Sofia and a history of public transportation in Sofia. Uh, a couple new books that I'm hoping maybe I'll create some little special episodes around at some point. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. But let's get into it. Last time, we covered the humiliating Russian loss to the Empire of Japan and its many, many repercussions, including the 1905 Russian Revolution and an opening up of the Balkans to a new round of great power competition. We also examined the aftermath of the Zagoritsa massacres as anti-Greek rallies and pogroms swept Bulgaria before culminating in the burning of Anchelos. Today, let's begin by finishing up the last few events of 1905. The year saw some labor news as press workers went on strike and managed to get some concessions. Bulgaria's first modern labor law was also passed, granting some protection to women and children working in factories. Other laws sought to give government support to larger factories to help further develop Bulgarian industry. A national census was also held, showing that the country's population had increased by almost 8%, about a quarter million people, in just five years. Otherwise, the ethnic makeup of the country hasn't changed too much in this time. As we know, most of the kind of ethnic changes in Bulgaria's population happened just after independence when a lot of ethnic Turks left, but you know, we're now a couple decades out and so things are pretty stable. Bulgaria's first official tobacco company was also, well, basically essentially became its very first cartel, as it now controls 40 out of 58 factories around cigarette uh, production in the country. So in general, while industry in Bulgaria is definitely still kind of getting off its feet, some of the kind of later stage things are already happening. Cartels are beginning to form. There's some labor agitation, some labor laws, some you know regulations are coming in. So the Bulgarian kind of economy is starting to formalize a little bit more and develop a little more in terms of industry. Although, as you know, Bulgaria is still overwhelmingly agricultural. But Yes, I'd say a lot of this is kind of hardly surprising considering the corruption we're seeing in the political system that there are some kind of labor agitation and a lot of people are upset and want more kind of left-wing changes in the country. Now, to finish up, meetings in both 1905 and 1906 were also held by Roma leaders who held several of their very first congresses in which they drew up petitions and demanded more rights for Roma people in Bulgaria. This marked the first ever organized political activity by this community. And, well, frankly, I wish I could have more details about this, but the fact that these congresses were held was just about the only information I could find. So, well, if any of you have any suggestions on good sources about uh, the kind of early kind of stages of Romani political activity, please let me know. But so far, I have come up empty. So that wraps up 1905. And with that, let's get into 1906, a year which kicks off with a good old-fashioned scandal. 
in March, a bombshell newspaper story from Mir, the newspaper of the Conservative People's Party of our old friend Stoilov, accused Prime Minister Petrov and Defense Minister Savov of illegally profiting off the purchase of ammunition from Austria-Hungary during the Ilinden uprising when war with the Ottomans seemed very possible and so there was a rush to acquire ammunition and sort of get the army sorted. So, essentially, the ammunition had been purchased from a company that was offering a more expensive bid. So, you know, so there were several bids and the government chose a more expensive one, which kind of seemed to ignore standard procedure. So it was a bit suspicious. Now, the excuse that the prime minister and defense minister gave was that although this firm was offering higher prices, it was offering more immediate delivery, which you can understand it was a bit of a crisis. They thought more might come at any time. So they said, hey, we were willing to pay a higher price to get the weapons and ammunition faster. However, the company ultimately failed to meet those fast delivery obligations, and the newspaper uncovered evidence that the Prime Minister, Defense Minister, and a few others collectively received tens of thousands of leva in bribes to make the deal happen. Now, Petrov and Savov both hit back with a defamation lawsuit, arguing that obtaining the ammunition without going through the usual procedures was justified because it was an emergency. They argued that the details of the bribe all came from a single source who later recanted their testimony. As a result, they ultimately won that lawsuit and the editor of the newspaper went to prison. Years later, when a new government took power, they ultimately would form a commission to investigate abuses of power by the Stambulovist government, but ultimately they were unable to, defin to definitively prove the corruption. So, Honestly, it's a situation where maybe the bribes happened, maybe they didn't, you know, a single source, maybe they were pressured to recant their testimony. It's kind of hard to say. But despite all of this, by October 1906, the scandal was still damaging enough that Prime Minister Rachel Petrov finally resigned. A new cabinet was formed under Dmitry Petkov. In other words, Minister Petrov you know, with Ferdinand's, remember he was a, a close ally of Ferdinand and was not the actual leader of the political party that was ostensibly in charge. Well, he was out and now the actual leader of that political party was actually running his party's government. A few months later, that defense minister, General Savov, also resigned because of the scandal. So yeah, it remains to be seen how losing such a close ally will affect Ferdinand's position, but frankly, I think he'll be fine. He's as we've seen, exceptionally good at kind of pulling the levers of power in Bulgaria and making sure that whoever's in charge, they are beholden to him. And frankly, the amount of power he has is kind of what ensures that is the case. So now that Dmitry Petkov is prime minister, let's take a moment to learn who he is. He was born in northern Dobrja near the Danube Delta in 1858, though his family was originally from Karlovo. Like many Bulgarians of his time, he ultimately went to Odessa, where he became part of the thriving Bulgarian community there. It was at this point that he finally got involved in affairs back in Bulgaria, fighting in the company of Totyu and Hitov during the Serbo-Turkish War in 1876, before joining Bulgarian volunteers to fight in the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878. In the fighting, he lost his left arm and was personally decorated with the St. George Cross by Tsar Alexander II. So, Arguably a war hero, very visibly a war hero, only has one arm, uh, sacrificed a lot here. But by the time Bulgaria obtained its partial independence, 
Of course, yeah, he was a well-known war hero, and he became a clerk in the Ministry of Internal Affairs and got involved with Petko Karavelov's Liberal Party. By the time Battenberg suspended the Constitution, Petkov spoke out loudly against the move and was sentenced to prison for two years as a result. Afterwards, he joined Stambolov's Liberal Party. There, within just five years, he became mayor of Sofia and then chairman of the National Assembly. In that time, he was a crucial actor in modernizing the city of Sofia, building streets and sewers to turn the old Ottoman town into a new Bulgarian city. However, in the process, he was also known for wantonly destroying many historical sites, including six medieval churches. Uh, actually, there's a church, if you go to uh, in central uh, Bulgaria or in central Sofia, you know, the big glass dome, there's a little church under that. And I believe if I'm remembering right, he was the one responsible for kind of destroying that. Although the Sofia city government later said that it was the Ottomans or I think someone else. They They had an incorrect story that shifted the blame. But I think if I remember right, that was the story. But in any case, whether I'm remembering that right or not, you know, he was destroying a lot of historical sites for the sake of modernization. And he ultimately became head of the People's Liberal Party, and as we know, now the country's 14th prime minister. So Petkov is clearly a patriot and a modernizer, if a bit unscrupulous. But before we get to his administration, we've got to finish covering some earlier events of 1906. In April, the famous MRO leader Atanasiankov's detachment was attacked and defeated near Melnik as they made an attempt to travel into Bulgaria. Yankov died in the attack, and with that, the MRO lost yet another of its more well-known leaders and another person who could potentially help kind of unify and uh, prevent a split in the organization. But that wasn't the only challenge facing the MRO. Another Congress was held in Skopje over the summer, in which the participants decided to focus on sowing chaos and mounting attacks in order to instigate a Bulgarian military intervention. In other words, although the left faction had triumphed at the Rila Congress a year and a half earlier, the right faction was clearly dominant in the Skopje district and was flexing its muscles there. This meeting also decided that if another General Congress of the MRO wasn't held within a year, it would actually... Basically, the Skopje Congress and the Skopje organization, the district, would just act however it saw fit. So it's sort of issuing an ultimatum that the organization as a whole needs to make some decisions, otherwise Skopje will do as it sees fit. And basically, if that Congress were held, they also somewhat unsurprisingly argued that if that Congress is held, a general Congress, that it should kind of return to the right faction of the MRO's approach to addressing the Macedonian question. In other words, the split in the MRO was alive and well. McDermott's biography of Jan Sandansky, which uh, I'll talk about later in later episodes, is problematic for some reasons, but, you know, she still has some pretty detailed coverage of some of these congresses that's useful. She writes how, quote, Even before the delegates to the General Congress had assembled, there prevailed an atmosphere of suspicion, animosity, and strife more suited to a conflict between two rival political parties in a crucial general election than to a Congress of comrades professing a single aim, end quote. So I think it's a pretty apt description of what the MRO feels like at this time and, and the extent to which the split is just growing ever deeper. Now, the reality was that 
Getting each revolutionary district to hold a Congress to elect delegates for a general Congress at this point was exceptionally difficult to organize on the timeline that that last general Congress had set. Remember, they had decided that, you know, these general Congresses should be held at a fairly regular interval. But, you know, just the logistics of letting everyone know each of those districts has to have its own mini Congress and select who's going to represent them and what they want to achieve. It's a big, big, long process to hold one of these things. So the Ceres Congress took charge at this point and basically sent an ultimatum to the other committees that a Congress was going to be held in Sofia and they should get their acts together and send delegates. Now, what we're seeing here is the meeting of theory and reality in running an organization like the MRO. The theory is that each district should, again, elect their representatives so general congresses can be held at regular intervals so the entire organization can kind of democratically decide how to proceed. The reality was that the circumstances on the ground often made this difficult or impossible. The result was that opening up, this kind of opened up new areas of conflict and new ways for members of one faction to increase their authority and attack members of the other faction, saying that they're not following the rules that were agreed upon at the General Congress, right? It just creates an endless number of potential areas of conflict. But for now, the new General Congress was scheduled for December in Sofia and... We'll see who can make it in time. Otherwise, the miners of Pernik, which is a mining town very close to Sofia, went on strike over the summer, but the strike was broken. So another example of that greater labor organization that I talked about and a trend we'll see more of in the future. In fact, months earlier, a group of anarcho-liberals, uh, basically a kind of anarcho-capitalism which advocates a stateless libertarian society, were expelled from the Bulgarian Workers' Social Democratic Party, which was holding its Congress in Varna. So, you know, more splits within the left. You know, same old, same old. However, a railroad strike was held at the end of 1906 and into early 1907, and it was supported by the Bulgarian Workers' Social Democratic Party, uh, the Bulgarian Social Democratic Union, and the relatively new Radical Democratic Party. So a bunch of, you know, Fairly new leftist parties are all supporting a railroad strike. Now, possibly because of this greater and more widespread backing, this strike was actually partially successful, marking one of the very first successes of labor organization in Bulgaria. But despite this, it's clear that the Bulgarian left is deeply fractured and not being super effective, but, you know, it's early days. Now, let's get back to the issue of anti-Bulgarian activities by Greek Cheti in Macedonia. I mentioned that after the massacre at Zagoritsa, the government in Athens wanted to calm things down a bit because it was getting a lot of bad press in, you know, the greater Europe. Well, so activity did continue, these kind of Greek cheti, but with fewer large-scale attacks that tended to grab more attention and headlines. Throughout the latter half of 1905, some Bulgarian villagers were killed, churches and monasteries were attacked, a wedding was even ambushed, while some Greek companies actually fought alongside Ottoman troops. They also fought with Bulgarian Cheti that were connected to the MRO. So at this point, there's some kind of open conflict going on there, which is frankly not surprising. Greeks also successfully assassinated several pro-Bulgarian figures in towns like Bitola. However, because all these actions were a lot more dispersed and on a smaller scale, they didn't attract the kind of big international attention that the Zagoritsa massacre had. By 1906, fighting between Greek and Bulgarian elements, though, was pretty widespread throughout Ottoman Macedonia, 
and many new Greek Cheti were entering the territory seeking to expand Greek influence further north. From May to November 1906, central Macedonia alone saw 30 attacks on Bulgarian villages. During that time, some 1,500 Greek fighters operating in around 80 Cheti roamed through the territory, attacking anyone and anything connected to the Bulgarian cause. In August, a particularly violent attack on the village of Smilovo, led by 180 Greek and Ottomans, uh, killed 15 and burned many homes. Violence was becoming so widespread that by 1907, the Ottomans, British, and other great powers were sending strongly worded messages to Athens, demanding they cut it out. Around September, one of the co-founders of the MRO, Dam Gruev, you may be surprised, remember him from when the MRO was founded in Thessaloniki, he crossed the Bulgarian-Ottoman border and headed towards that city, where he hoped to sort out all the issues in the MRO and, you know, help kind of arrange all these regional congresses so that they could then have a successful general congress. The Thessaloniki region had just been devastated when the diary of a local teacher was obtained by the Ottomans, and in it he wrote all about the local MRO, and as a result, dozens of teachers and MRO activists were arrested. Dom soon left and traveled around to meet other MRO contacts before turning back towards Sofia for the upcoming General Congress. On the way, he and his companions stayed in a village house whose owner neglected to post any guards outside the home, and as a result, two Ottoman soldiers entered the home, found the company, and started shooting. Gruev was shot in the leg, but managed to escape. However, blood from his wound left a trail in the snow, Ottoman soldiers found him, and he and his companion were both killed. Gruev was buried in the village, but shortly afterwards, the local governor ordered his body exhumed so it could be photographed to confirm his identity. This was because there was a bounty on his head, and once his identity was confirmed, the Ottoman soldiers were richly rewarded, some even receiving medals. His death was celebrated both in the Ottoman Empire and in Serbia, but for the MRO, losing Gruev meant losing yet another prominent founding figure who might have had the kind of political abilities in the political capital to help mend the growing split in the organization. So, the MRO met in mid-December in Sofia without Gruev. The meeting itself was, unsurprisingly, contentious, because many of the attendees were members of the right-wing faction of the organization, and in theory, they actually shouldn't have even been able to participate because they had spent too much time outside of MRO territory, which violated one of the articles that was agreed to at the Rila Congress. In other words, the Rila Congress said that you can only be an MRO member if you're actually like in Macedonia for most of the time, something along those lines. Another article had concluded that such congresses should only be held in MRO territory, so actually holding this event in Sofia at all technically broke the rules. Eventually, left-wing members agreed that the congress could be held in Sofia, but the fight over whether these right-wing members who had lived outside MRO territories, including people like Sarafov and Ivan Gervanov, could participate, continued, and again, say it with me, further deepen the rift in the MRO. Eventually, left-wing members just left the Congress, and it basically ended. A few days later on Christmas, participants received invitations to go to a new Congress, again to be held at the Rila Monastery. Many members of the right-wing faction refused, but the left-wing members went. 
They stopped for about a day from about a day from the monastery to celebrate New Year's, drinking and shooting their pistols, celebrating wildly, having, you know, New Year's fun, before setting off for the last leg of the journey to the monastery on New Year's Day. On the way, one member of the party shot at a hunting dog who barked at him, leading to a fight with some of the hunters, which led to two hunters being killed. As a result, by the time everyone actually reached the monastery, the police had been notified of the incident and it was quickly decided that many MRO members should just leave immediately before the Ottomans could bring in troops. Those who remained at Rila were arrested the next day, but soon released because they actually hadn't been involved in the killing and so they could prove no crime. McDermott speculates that the man who shot the dog may have actually done so to prevent the Congress from being held. So... Yeah, he, the, the theory is that he was beginning to shift his sympathies towards the right faction and wanted to disrupt the left faction's activity. Anyways, after this happened, the right faction members still in Sofia quickly organized yet another meeting in January in which they acted like they were a proper Congress and issued a statement which said that the MRO should prioritize military preparation, which is the right-wing faction's preferred technique, over the kind of gradual cultural influence, which was the main priority of the left faction. It also laid out plans to attack the Greek population that had supported attacks on Bulgarians, assassinate officials, destroy bridges and banks and other infrastructures, and to eventually mount further uprisings. This statement also said that the MRO should maintain close ties to Bulgaria while remaining independent. In other words, it wanted Bulgarian support and things, but didn't think the organization should be kind of subservient to Bulgarian interests. Finally, this statement rejected the rules laid out at the previous Riola Congress, blaming them for the chaos engulfing the MRO at this moment, which, I mean, is kind of fair. Or, as McDermott put it, quote, the lawful, unanimous decisions of a properly constituted constituted Congress, which had taken place after nearly two years' discussion of the questions involved, were declared impractical and set aside by an irregular meeting at which all, not all regions were even represented, end quote. Which is also fair. I mean, McDermott's not wrong there, but, you know, stating that the kind of style of governing the organization that was set out at the Rila Congress was proving to be, you know, unwieldy and impractical is also true. So, while this Cong Congress didn't elect a new central committee, it did elect new representatives from many regions and began to publish Ilinden, a new newspaper representing the MRO's right wing. Within a few weeks, the left wing had its own meeting at a village near Dupnitsa. However, while they discussed how to combat supremacist influence of the right wing, as well as how to respond to growing Greek and Serbian incursions, they ultimately didn't really come to any final decisions. But, Whatever they decided, it was by now clear that the left-wing split in the MRO was permanent, right? That the two wings are at this point having completely different meetings, you know, deciding on contradictory things, and they're kind of just about denouncing each other. It's gotten ugly. The, these two factions by this point had dramatically different aims, dramatically different principles, and honestly, it just seemed like working together no longer was practical. Though the supremacists no longer existed as an organization, as you can see, the right wing of the MRO had basically taken up the mantle of their approach to the Macedonian question, which was an accusation that Sendansky on the left wing made loudly and used as one of the many, many excuses to reject the outcomes of that right wing faction meeting in Sofia. 
Now, in late summer, some of Sandansky's close allies on the left wing attempted to kidnap a British colonel, but were spotted in the act and set upon by local gendarmes. The colonel managed to get away and use a revolver he still had to shoot one of the attempted captors dead. A trial was held, and a host of locals received hefty prison sentences. Pressure was building on the left wing. When they held a regional congress in Strumica, Ottomans' forces surprised them and arrested many participants. Shortly after the failed kidnapping, when Sandansky held his own Serres regional congress, security was understandably tight. Even though the left wing wanted to prioritize using cultural and educational strategies to further their influence, the violent realities on the ground meant they had to focus more than ever on self-defense. But ultimately, after long discussions of the myriad problems they faced, they stated that, quote, the Congress considers unity within the organization as the chief guarantee of its success. It regards all externally inspired factional groupings as the fruit of alien interference, harmful to the independence and integrity of the organization, and it appeals to all those active in the interior highly to value this independence, end quote. In other words, they're denouncing the right wing and saying that they are sort of under outside influence and that it is bad. Now, they even went on to conclude that the MRO needed no external representatives, i.e. the kind of ones that were elected by the right-wingers earlier in the year. One of Sandansky's deputies, Mikhail Dayev, was also reprimanded. But in reality, he had already secretly switched allegiances to the right-wing and was by now actually planning to kill Sandansky. So, yeah, you can see the, the, the infighting and the intrigue is thick. Now, Dayev had ironically actually been originally tasked with killing those foreign representatives from the right wing, including Serafov and Gervanov. But he soon made the mistake of confiding his plan with his kum, which is like the best man at your wedding, but in Bulgaria this is like an even closer relationship, a man named Todor Panitsa, who turned out to be an actual supporter of the left wing, and so he told Sandansky that, well, that Dayev was planning to double-cross him. So, Sarafov, Gervanov, and Dayev were then all sentenced to death by the Serres Committee for basically you know, betraying the MRO in their eyes. Dayev was caught in October and ultimately committed suicide in captivity. About a month later, Panitsa met with Sarafov and Gervanov at the home of Sarafov in Sofia. Panitsa was disappointed that Khristomatov, the third representative sentenced to death, wasn't going to make it to this meeting, but he still spent some hours chatting with Sarafov and Garvanov and, you know, just catching up, because the two were completely unaware that the guest was about to murder them. Then, at about 11 p.m., Panitsa was getting up to leave, and at the door, he pulled out his pistol and shot both men. So, it had finally happened. After narrowly escaping death so many times, Serafov was finally gone. He had been perhaps the most charismatic leader of the Macedonian movement, but also, without a doubt, its most controversial. He had changed sides many times, often with very unclear motivations, and made probably even more enemies than friends. Gervanov was also dead, and recall he was highly educated and was that original founder of the Bulgarian Secret Revolutionary Brotherhood, which had then risen to prominence in both the supremacists and the MRO, and for a brief time he almost kind of sort of ran the MRO, and like Sarafov, no doubt talented, but his true motivations were also quite murky. With the death of these three men, including Dayev, who committed suicide, 
That rupture between the left and the right-wing factions of the MRO was complete. The faint glimmer of a hope of reconciliation which might have existed before was now completely snuffed out. Next time, we'll cover the other major events of 1907 and see how the right wing will respond to the murder of several of its major leaders. And, well, you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out more information at bghistorypodcast.com, and I'll catch you in the next one.